Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard, and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. Joining me today from Victoria, Australia, is Belinda Baggs, a legendary longboard surfer, activist, and mom. She is also Patagonia surf ambassador and an avid waterwoman in both surfing and body surfing. She shares with us her passion for climate activism, along with her newest project on nonprofit, Surfers for Climate. She talks about how being a mom shifted her perspective. We talk about nose riding, wetsuits, seismic exploration, carbon footprints, and maintaining balance. As a lifelong surfer, she sees surfing as more of an art than a sport, although she had a very impressionable competitive stint, giving her the rank of third in the Women's World Longboard Champion in 2000, and also the Australian Professional Longboard Circuit Championship. She was the first female surfer featured on the cover of Surfer's Journal, and she also has been featured in films Sprout, Deer in Yonder, and Come Hell in High Water. Now, through collaborative projects and film, on Instagram, and other media outlets, Belinda uses photography and film as a platform to profile the surf community and the relationship between sport and ecosystem. I reflect on this community of changemakers and how lucky that the internet connects us all over causes and passions. As seekers from such different geographies, we find ways to share common threads and differences alike. This conversation you will really enjoy. It is about an intuitive and passion-driven journey as an athlete, parent, and activist. So here I am in the Green Mountains of New England in a small bucolic town along a river and tucked in the hills. Night has fallen and the damp chilly rain has draped the valley. I sit inside in my sound-treated phone booth where I record with Blinda. She is in Victoria, Australia, in her attic, in her home, a short walk from the expansive and awesome coast of the southern Australian waters. Whales are amidst their migration and dolphins play in the surf. My evening is her morning. My today is her yesterday. My early fall is her early spring. And in spite of these differences, we bridge the gap. The power of connection is such an important factor in achieving goals, being inspired, offering guidance, and finding support. But more profoundly, here, I just reflect on the magic of connecting across such great distances and the profundity of human networks. Enjoy this conversation. We had fun recording it. Belinda, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. Me too. You have your heart in the ocean and you've been a surfer for and a body surfer for all of your life and you're well known for your graceful and technically accomplished longboard style. But tell us, how did you get 
involved for those of us who don't know your full story? Um, well, I guess I've been surfing my whole life, it seems like. My dad is an avid surfer, kind of goes to the beach every day. And so it was just sort of a natural thing for me. I grew up, you know, with that lifestyle, which was like checking the surf in the morning, going to school and then surfing again in the afternoon. And of course, every weekend was spent in the sand. And so just when I, as I got older, I felt like I kind of graduated out of building sandcastles onto the shore break and then eventually from the shore break out the back. So it was sort of just a, felt like it was just part of growing up and part of adolescence and a natural rite of passage. (laughs) And then you started what type of surfing to begin with? Uh, so my dad was a longboarder, so I started longboarding. But at, at the time, it was, you know, the, I guess, early 90s in Australia, and there wasn't really any traditional style longboards. It was either like high performance, three fin longboards, or people that rode boards made in the 60s. My first influences of surfing were kind of from that high performance sort of realm. And I always battled with trying to learn how to shortboard as well, but <laughs> never really succeeded. And it wasn't until I went to California for my first time in 2000 that I saw people riding modern single fin logs and was completely blown away by the type of surfing that they were doing and really just wanted to learn in order to feel those sensations that they were feeling. So I, I dedicated a couple of summers actually at Malibu in California and grabbed like borrowed a really old log off off a friend and and just sat there the whole summer surfing and learning and watching and just yeah trying to grasp that. And what was the lure of the the longboarding for you? I think that it was just the graceful flow mm. of it more than anything else. You know, you watch shortboarding and you know the people that do it well are so intensely immensely you know talented but it's sort of very masculine like a lot of it with the like big turning and I don't know it's kind of a little bit aggressive to me Mm -hmm. there's obviously people that do it very 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 well that may flow a little bit better than others but it just didn't really seem to sit right I really enjoy having an early entry on a wave Mm -hmm. and so longboarding just sort of seemed to fit so much better with that and I found that when I was on a longboard particularly when I was riding a single fin longboard I felt feminine which is not very common for me on land. I'm a bit awkward and clumsy and, you know, I'm not one to No, like, you are not. I am, I am. <laughs> and, you know, I don't Not in the up, ocean. I don't wake up in the morning and, like, do my hair and put beautiful dresses on. <laughs> but when I enter the ocean on my, my log, like, I can feel all those things. I feel like a lady and I feel proud of that. And so I think it's sort of just a way for me to harness that feminine energy. There is this elegance in the in the the films and the clips that I've seen of you nose riding and just doing this sort of dance on this longboard that has a finesse to it that is it's just beautiful. I can only imagine that once you sort of had the taste of that and and had that feeling intrinsically that that was a sort of really alluring place to go with it. Yeah, I think the first time I connected like a proper nose ride. I was like, wow, it just really feels like a pelican riding those updrafts as they glide along the surface of a wave. I was like, that's what it feels like to me. And I just got really addicted and literally dedicated like the next 10 to 15 years of my life 
to just feel that as much as I possibly could. Oh, I love it. That feeling of of sort of flying through in above of that. Wow. And when did the competitive edge come in? So when I grew up in Newcastle on the Australian coast, there was a lot of local longboard competitions that were happening at the time. They're actually still happening. A lot of club rounds and a lot of opportunities to visit other places as well along our coast. So my dad would sort of take us. It was a full family event. We had amazing friends. And so it was really just those competitions were sort of part, just getting together with people that you were inspired by and people that you loved hanging out with and spending time with. And it was a really family kind of atmosphere. And so, you know, those those competitions sort of grew. We ended up having, you know, the Noosa Festival of Surfing and World Surf League sort of got involved and, and professionalized it a little bit more. And then I had opportunity to, which is what brought me to America the first time, was to go over there and to compete in a couple of competitions. And so I guess like the whole competitive thing for me was part spending time with friends and family, mm. part inspiration and being able to meet other longboarders and learn from from their styles and ability and spend time in the ocean with them. And then the other part was a bit of an excuse to get to travel. <laughs> yeah, right. Being your spot, you became sponsored at that point. Yeah, um, I picked up a couple of, couple of sponsors and they supported me to get to a lot of these events. And I had an absolute ball doing it, but the, the more that I did it, the more that I sort of realized that I actually didn't like the competitive aspect of it at all mm-hmm. and that it didn't really seem to fit in with my passion and love for surfing. It was almost like a, con- a direct contradiction to that. So I slowly sort of dwindled away from doing, mm-hmm. doing the competitive events and realized that I actually now I'd made all these amazing connections with great people all over the world. I actually didn't need those events to travel to. It was okay to just go visit your friend who lived in, you know, the US or France or, you know, Japan. And so you still had these opportunities to travel. And that kind of turned into, I guess, more of a, like being able to document those travels along the way. So a little bit more photo shooting and and kind of storytelling aspect. Yeah. So I've noticed that you have a wonderful online resource of still and motion photography, which is really unique. And how did that become something that you started to do accompanying your your surfing? I think probably when when I decided I didn't want to do competitions, I was trying to look for other avenues where I didn't have to work, you know, six to seven days a week and in order to save up money to travel. And so a lot of those sponsors that I had previously, as well as some new ones, new sponsors came on board. I started working for Patagonia, who obviously doesn't really follow that whole competitive route of surfing. Like, hey, have you come to us with like really good proposals of, you know, really great adventure trips or sports trips or locations that might have an environmental story to tell, mm-hmm. then you can definitely like utilize our support in order to do those things. Mm-hmm. So what was, what role did Patagonia play or what was your role working with them and has it evolved? It's definitely evolved. I've been with them for about, oh, I don't know, almost 15 years now, which is, <laughs> it seems like a lifetime, which is amazing. Yeah, a lot of chapters in, in that amount of time. Yeah, definitely. So I started as a surf ambassador for them, doing a lot of product testing. Initially, I came on board because they needed a girl to in order to test a lot of their swimsuits and wetsuits and some 
friends of mine all working from for them at the time and they said well nobody is in the water more than bindi so if you want to have a wetsuit tested it's your she's girl the one to wear it um, yeah and so it sort of started there and then obviously with some support from them to travel and things like that and then eventually i got to a point where i was learning so much from them especially in an environmental front that i was just intrigued to be a a, you know, a, more of a part of, of the business as well as I'd had my son and I needed more money to support him. I couldn't mm-hmm. couch surf anymore and live, you know, out of the back of my car. And they were like, hey, well, if you want to jump on board, like we'll offer you a job. So that role kind of transformed into I was working as social media manager at the Patagonia Australia office for quite some time, which was amazing. I got to learn so much about you know, the whole world of marketing that I would have never have, have known before, as well as just a, had a deep understanding of all the environmental campaigns that Patagonia are working on and why they do the things that they do. And, you know, a lot of things that are extremely important to the environment that I guess you wouldn't really consider unless you, you're sort of like de- deeply immersed and buried in it. Mm-hmm. So that's been, that was an amazing, you know, about five years that I was working on that. And then I just really started getting so passionate about environmental campaigns that I was spending all my free time working on their environmental campaigns outside of office hours. Yeah. And eventually they were like, hey, let's, let's sort of transform your role a bit more into, into working on these environmental campaigns as well as giving you a bit of freedom to be able to work on things that you're passionate about as well. Huh. It seems like a really key relationship that you've had in over the last 15 years to that you've been able to evolve with and has supported your evolution from product tester to you know really now following a similar and a shared vision of environmental issues that's probably really unique do you have any advice for other people that would be say um following their passion that involved a connection with nature and how they might i don't know how you construct a situation like you have, it seems pretty rare, but do you have any advice? I mean, I never really, I think from this, from the get-go when I started surfing, I never intended to be this famous sponsored surfer or like make a heap of money from it. I just followed my passion and the one thing that I loved all along. And it's just led me to, I guess, like you said, a really unique position. But I would say to anybody out there, like, make sure that you're true to your heart and and follow your passion. And, you know, I've also put in a lot of really hard work, whether that be time in the ocean. I know it doesn't sound like work, but, you know, just just with that intent to get better, as well as as obviously being flexible and being able to work on the projects that, that Patagonia have wanted over time. So, yeah, I'd just say a combination of, like, passion hard work and just sort of keep making sure that you keep your eye on on the end game of of whatever that is Mm -hmm. and sometimes it doesn't eventuate and I have a whole heap of friends who I'd consider as good if not better surfers than myself and they're working full-time jobs but they're really happy with what they're doing because you know they kind of had had different aspirations with life and so it's not always what it's cracked up to be (laughs) right there's usually an underbelly of everything. Yeah. I have been um, very lucky and granted a really unique position and, and so thankful for all the support that Patagonia has been able to provide me over the years, along with just all the, the teachings that they've been able mm. to 
you know, all the lessons that I've learned from them along the along the road. And I don't think I would be such a passionate environmentalist is it if mm-hmm. it wasn't for, you know, kind of kind of following their lead, definitely. Mm-hmm. And are there mentors within the organization specifically that you have felt have helped guide your thinking? I definitely say that there is obviously Yvonne Chouinard's like such a hero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so reading all his books and being able to have a couple of chats to him from time to time has been, you know, really inspiring and and definitely led to my lent, lent to my path, as well as you know the whole really the whole team here at Patagonia Australia is so incredible, and I feel like I've learned so much from from all of them, particularly the environmental manager Shannon, who's just been absolutely amazing in in helping like mentor and guide my environmental path. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about wetsuits and what should we know when we buy our next wetsuit? Um, that they're one of the most toxic pieces of equipment that we rely on as surfers. The petrochemical use in the standard wetsuit is really gnarly. There's a lot of companies that have also that, that produce those suits and that type of rubber that are also really hindering the local area where they produce them. So socially they they're really not doing the right thing as well as environmentally. That limestone's not all it's cracked up to be because it's also being mined. And that there are just really better options out there now with this ULEX natural rubber. Obviously, Patagonia is kind of paving the way with that formula, but there's a lot of other companies that are getting on board and using that now. So it's not just trying to Mm -hmm. (laughs) prop up Patagonia sales here, but I would definitely say that if you are next time you're in the surf store, like look past that conventional suit because Mm -hmm. they're just really hindering our environment, heaps of toxic chemicals, um, completely dependent on the fossil fuel industry in order to produce those. And there's, yeah, better options. So look into those green options. And so what's the source material we're looking for that would, is the better option? So the better option is natural rubber. It's Ulex. It's grown from the Havea tree. There's plantations in quite a few different regions, Sri Lanka and I believe South America primarily where they grow. And a lot of the, most of those plantations are SC certified. So there's no deforestation kind of occurring in that process. And I actually got to visit the Ulex rubber plantation in Sri Lanka, which was absolutely amazing. We were just walking through this forest that had like monkeys swinging on trees and all kinds of wildlife in there and watched a couple of the local workers tap one of the trees, which is sort of just cutting a little section out of the outside of the bar. They put like a small bucket under there. It's sap, but it's like rubber drains into the cup and you can actually dip your fingers in, wrap them around a little bit. And then you're left with like literally a piece of rubber. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. And then they take those buckets up to the factory, which is about 200 meters behind us, and process it with water, essentially, and turned it into these massive rubber sheets that are used to make our wetsuits. So it was really a, such a phenomenal process to see that taking place. And also good to know that the factory is fair trade certified as well. So all the workers are getting paid top dollar. They're looking after the environment. They're looking after the community. Important. I mean, it's, it's a small thing that I think just bringing awareness to. Now, 
we can just have more knowledge of the fact that there are options out there, petroleum-based things, yoga mats, wetsuits, there are options out there. Yeah. And even surfboards, there's better, you know, more sustainable options now, as well as wax. Like wax is actually really bad, especially when we're taking it in the ocean and little tiny particles are flaking off our board and they're essentially just putting plastics into our sea. Mm -hmm. So there's natural options for wax as well as sunscreen. Obviously, a lot of sunscreen on the reef and they're toxic for our bodies. So look out for, for more sustainable sunscreen as well. So there are so many issues. How do you focus? I don't. (laughs) I guess I try and focus on the things that I feel like I could potentially make a positive impact with. Mm -hmm. Some of those being local, because I definitely think that there's power in, you know, everybody looking after their local area. Mm -hmm. So I definitely say part of my issues that I choose are local, other ones maybe on a bigger scale, but things that I feel like me being involved is is definitely going to be a positive. So I guess they're probably my two deciding factors. And of course, things that are that are more urgent than others. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's there's nothing more urgent right now than the climate crisis. So I've been focusing a lot of time on that. Mm-hmm. And the effects on the ocean specifically, it sounds like. What about the seismic exploration and some of, I, I, first time I heard of that, about that, quite honestly, was when I was researching some of your work. And I Obviously, it's incredibly shocking, the effects of that. I'm wondering if you could just speak briefly about that. I guess my involvement in that came about when the area of my hometown in Newcastle, it's actually 4,500 square kilometres of ocean between Newcastle and Sydney, being opened up with a gas and oil lease. And so when companies exploring for gas and oil deposits in within the seafloor, as well as on land, but they really use it in the seafloor. Seismic testing is the way that they can kind of determine, you know, what's under there. So it's mm-hmm. bas- basically send out a boat with these crazy, like they're almost like explosives or blasts that are 250 decibels each time, which is actually like enough to to kill a human if you're in within really close proximity to that. So you can imagine that like being sent through the ocean and it's not just once, every sort of round of testing is slightly different, but they're usually like every minute for tw- continuous for 24 hours up to seven days to months on end, blasting these huge sounds into the ocean that actually travel underwater up to, I think it's like a thousand kilometers, something absolutely crazy. And when you think about all the wildlife, obviously the marine life that's in the sea that, you know, operate on sonar, like whales, dolphins, and even other species that they're just sort of doing a lot of research on now, such as rock lobsters and crabs and fish, they all like greatly threatened and put at risk from this like practice. Mm-hmm. And that practice is worldwide. It is worldwide. Certain countries have banned it because they see that it just has such a huge impact on our oceans. There is a lot of countries that are still doing it, including here in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's such a prehistoric practice that definitely needs to stop. It's sort of the first step towards opening up these areas and turning them into oil and gas fields. Mm-hmm. So not only is that process damaging, if they deem it as successful, 
and are happy with what they find, then we're going to end up with oil and gas exploration in our waters. Yeah. And I I suppose if you're going down the fighting against (laughs) big oil industry, you also have to address the consumption part of our culture and society. And that, that is that a, that's a big message too of yours, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely think, you know, as any individual on this planet, as well as surfers, particularly because we do have that deep connection with the environment. We don't want oil and gas rigs in our waters. We don't want oil washing up on our shores. We don't want to see oil spills destroying like the you know habitat for wildlife as well as these waves that we all love, then we have a responsibility to lessen our dependence on the product as well. I do see that a lot of that is deeply embedded into our system at the moment. You know, like I'm guilty, I drive a car, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that I'm living without fossil fuels because I'm absolutely not. But I think there's certain things that we can we have the power to change very easily just within our choices, whether that be our surf equipment. You know, we, we discussed that earlier, like just choosing more sustainable options, more natural options, whether that be, you know, putting solar power on our roof or choosing to buy green, green power in our electricity provider and also really looking at where we invest our money. So, you know, what banking, what banking you choose. We call it super here in Australia. I think you guys might call it 401k. It's like your retirement fund, where that goes, where you choose to get your insurance from, like all those companies heavily invest in, you know, fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And they're one of the main reasons why all these projects can actually go ahead because the fossil fuel industry is getting funding from them. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a few of these institutions out there that don't invest in fossil fuels. And so if we can really focus on putting our money in those places, you know, that's sort of one of the biggest ways that we're going to be able to create these system changes, as well as obviously trying to tackle all the, you know, legislations that our governments are handing down for us. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of work to do. It's a, it's a huge <laughs> yeah. job. Um, and, you know, I think everybody goes like, well, what difference am I going to make as an individual? Mm. And that's personally my number one, like, most hated thing, because we all can make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's so many ways that we can we can do that. Like I just said, listed all those options, our individual footprints, mm-hmm. putting pressure on our governments, changing our money. And I think collectively, if we all just got on board with that, then everything's going to happen sooner and quicker. Mm-hmm. So definitely don't dismiss the power that you have individually because it's huge. So we claim it, we own it, we make the difference when we can. Yeah, exactly. I look at, you know, the fight for the bite campaign as a great example here in Australia is that, you know, tens and thousands of us surfers, I think there was somewhere between 50 and 60,000 surfers across our country on one day of National Day of Action all turned up and paddled out and protested against oil drilling in the Great Australian Bight. If 50,000 of us decided that, well, what difference can one individual make, then there would have been nobody there. Mm-hmm. So eventually, Equinor pulled out of drilling in the bight, mm-hmm. and a big part of that was because of public pressure. Yay, the paddle outs worked, <laughs> right? And it was really phenomenal, as well as economic reasons, as well. But they definitely had a you know the company that was looking at exploring their Equinor definitely had their reputation tarnished, and they didn't want to be responsible for that. So good for you. 
I want to segue a little bit into being a surfer mom and the transition that you had when you became a mom and both the after that of what you when you have a small child and then a larger boy, but also sort of working up to that and that decision. You know, this podcast is not only for women, but it is called When Women Fly. And it's a choice. And for many of us to have kids or not, and when we have active lifestyles, there is an impact of that choice um, that we continue to work with on a day-to-day basis. And I just wondered from a perspective of having kids in the first place, right? Did you always know that that was in your destiny or was it sort of a decision? And then how that has become a big part of, of your life? Well, I never wanted to have kids, <laughs> to be honest. I was way too selfish. I was just surf obsessed, like crazy woman that I was like, no way, I'm not having kids. That's just going to get in the way of me catching waves. <laughs> and it does, for sure. <laughs> but the older I got, the more I realized that, I don't know, it just sort of felt right at the time. So it was a decision that I went after. And after having him, he's like my son, Mason's such a blessing not just to have him, but also to my own personality and my own life. I feel like I'd be a very different person now if it wasn't for him. He's made me realize that I'm no longer the center of the universe, (laughs) I guess, so to speak. Necessarily. Yeah. And I mean, like, obviously he's the center of my universe now, but it's just given me so much more compassion for other people's situations out there in realizing that, you know, People have issues, they have a lot of stuff going on, and it may not really appear on the surface when they're out in the water, you know, when they're out in the water, like, and how that one wave may have the power to change their whole day, their whole week, their whole month, and really make a difference. And I think it's made me appreciate surfing in a whole new light because of that. When I, you know, obviously, when you have kids, you're out of the water. For you know, a little while I was out of the water. I think for about three months. Well, that's not true. I was swimming and whaling around, but I wasn't really surfing, floating. <laughs> yeah, I was floating around, and so it's really just brought upon that like deeper appreciation for any surf. You know, and any time that I get to go out in the water now, and of course, spending time with him in the water is just a whole new, a whole new experience that's made surfing that much more meaningful you kind of realizing that being in the ocean, this lifestyle and riding waves is a type of family heritage that I feel like has been passed down from my father. And now I'm able to teach my son those same lessons that my dad taught me, mm-hmm. which is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And what are those lessons? Mostly I'd say about commitment and not hesitating. So you know, my dad's always told me, like, if you're going to catch a wave, you've got to commit. Like, don't hesitate and pull back last minute because that's when things are going to go wrong, you know. And so I'd say, like, that's a big one, trying to teach him that as well as he's probably the opposite opposite of me. I was always, like, more hesitant, but he's more like, gung-ho, let's charge. And so, like, the same thing is, like, making sure that you challenge yourself, but you also stick within a realm that that's somewhat attainable and not putting yourself in a position where you're going to get, you know, greatly injured or, you know, put someone else's life at risk. So Mm -hmm. kind of staying, pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves within certain safe boundaries, I would say, which has been pretty amazing. And also just, just the general, you know, way of learning to read the ocean, I guess, which has probably been the most fun with him 
trying to teach him about rips and where to paddle out. And even though, you know, you're right in front of the break and this may look like the best spot to paddle out, you're actually not going to get out here. You need to go way down the beach mm-hmm. and paddle around and kind of, yeah, just just hit watching him learn and evolve with, you know, the water movement and like how a wave breaks and his timing. And there's all those things where like, you know, dad taught me and I'm trying to teach him, but there's really nothing as good as watching somebody learn it themselves. Right. And you're literally passing, passing it on. You can sort of see that playing out. That feeling must be really incredible for you to see that. And there must be some, you know, a tinge of fear in there too, when you have your little, little guy, right. Even on a one footer. I like often find myself like catching white water in just because he caught the wave before and I want to make sure that I'm right next to him. So when we surf together right now, it's still not like a fully focused surf session of my own. Like obviously my focus is on making sure he's safe, making sure he's getting waves. Just recently I've had this like crazy paranoia about him getting eaten by a shark. So I'm like always right next to him making sure he's okay. There's always like some little mommy thing that's, you know, paranoid about some risk that is either real or perceived. Completely. I know. A couple of months ago, he dropped down like a three to four foot wave, got, took off way too late. He was on his, on his bodyboard, completely got eaten. And I'm like, oh no, is he okay? I'm like paddling over as quick as I can. And he comes up with this huge grin on his face and he's like, I feel like a broken cookie, mom. Let's do it again. I love it. You take a deep breath and carry on. Oh, that's that's magic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just brushing upon too, like you were saying with obviously it being like a a hindering decision and a hard decision to make for a lot of people, there was moments where, especially when I was pregnant and I didn't have him yet, I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I still have no idea what I'm doing. And you just tackle each day as it comes. I kind of had this vision of, because I'd traveled a lot and been to a lot of, I guess, you know, developing nations and, and different cultures and being able to sort of watch how, how other parents were raising their children. I had this vision of me like, you know, literally giving birth to him like in the shore break and um, not needing any of the, you know, the creams or the like, <laughs> changing tables. Or, like, all the things. All the you don't things. need that. I'm like, I don't need that. Like, he can just, just be with me and we'll be fine. And then, of course, like when he gets his first rash, I'm like on the phone to my mom, like, what do I do? He's got a rash. Like, and she's like, you put this cream on it, the cream I gave you that you tried to throw away. And I'm like, damn it. Okay, I'm using the cream. On that changing table that I gave you that you threw away. Exactly, exactly. Lucky I'd kept it all in my garage. So <laughs> good for you. Yeah. So I think it's just finding a balance of what works for you. I traveled a lot with him when he was a baby as well. And people told me, you know, oh, you can't take your six-month-old to the Philippines. That's so dangerous. That's insane. I'm like, people have babies in the Philippines. Like, it's going to be fine. And, of course, we were completely fine, you know. And there was other things that I did with him that I was like, yeah, that probably wasn't the smartest idea. Like trying to take him surfing when he was three months old. <laughs> you learn as you go. And he get ex- gets exposed and and... I imagine that you have been surfing with him from a pretty young age and his um, comfort in the water was probably something that early on was a priority of yours. Well, I mean, of course, my dream is to be out there surfing with him, but I really just wanted him to be comfortable with the ocean and as well as 
being able to know that, you know, know how to swim, be able to save himself in order just for safety's sake because I knew that we'd always always be around water or ocean, you know, worst-case scenario, pools. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. always going to be part of our life. So I sort of made sure that throughout his whole life he's been dunked under and mm-hmm. <laughs> in a safe environment but, like, dunked under or, like, you know, exposed to tiny waves in the shore break had him in swimming lessons from when he was a tiny baby just to make sure that he sort of had that, I guess, just confidence around water mm-hmm. and to be able to, and now, of course, like I'm trying to teach him how to ride waves at his own level. I'm not pushing him in it by any means. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he goes, oh, I just don't feel like it. I'm not going to go. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then there'll be months where he's on me and he's like, mom, can we go to the beach today? Like you slept in, let's go. Come on, come on. Mm-hmm. Which I secretly love. But I have created a monster. <laughs> you completely have, yeah. of course. Which yeah. is great. But yeah, I think just making sure that he was confident and providing him now with the options that if he wants to become a bodyboarder, he can, or if he wants to become a surfer or a longboarder, or if he just wants to be a weekend warrior and maybe go out for a splash for a time to time, like that's great too. Mm-hmm. I just would love him to have some type of connection with the ocean and kind of pave his own path with that. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken before about how after having him, your awareness about environmental issues took on a new level, was sort of ratcheted up. Can you speak to that and how that having him sort of made you see in a bigger, in a way, some of these issues and the impact of not doing anything, maybe? It's kind of all resulted in, in climate change in the end. Mm-hmm. There's obviously, you know, you see a lot of local issues that are happening beaches that have kind of that have gotten destroyed because of development or industrialization and the thought of him not being able to enjoy those you know specific locations that I had as a child is sad I want to give him those opportunities but then when I started learning more and more about climate change and the predicted predicted trajectory that we're currently on if we don't lower our emissions it's absolutely terrifying And I sort of see that my number one role as a parent is being able to provide my son with a safe and flourishing environment and future, whether that be in a minute's time or in 10 years' time. But when you read the predictions of climate change in 50 years' time, that looks really terrifying. Grim. Yeah, it's grim and it's sad and I don't want him to live in a world where he has to continuously deal with these encounters of extreme weather events, you know, apocalyptic bushfires, not being able to source enough food. I want him to be able to have an opportunity to have his own family Mm -hmm. and just experience this beautiful world as it is. And so... That's why I now dedicate the majority of my waking hours mm-hmm. to trying to make this, to make an impact in being able to provide him with a better future and put us on a better track for climate change. And what role does, what role does social media play in your messaging and your platform? I'd say the tool of social media is really greatly beneficial in being able to get your message out there, really. Spread awareness, spread knowledge. And it doesn't have to be scientific facts or knowledge. I'm not a scientist. I've read the facts. 
I forget most of the numbers, um, but they've scared the shit out of me. But a lot of it is about just being able to convey my story and my personal message with people that I'm already connected to and hope that they will be able to get on board with doing the right thing as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you read, I don't know what it's like in America, but you look at the mainstream news here in Australia and they don't tell you what's going on. You know, half of our government are climate deniers and it's absolutely insane. Let's just say it's not any better here. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and so, you know, I think although you really need to check the source of whatever you read and learn from social media, I think it can be a really great place to get these messages out there, spread this real life news at a time when mainstream media is failing us on telling us those things, Mm. the things that we need to know. And I also think that it's a fantastic tool to be able to connect all these like-minded people or people who Mm. want to take action to things where they can, you know, where they easily can. Mm -hmm. In that way, I've social media has my thumbs up. And do you have any complications about setting boundaries or have that, has that been? With social media specifically? I mean, you didn't have, when you got into sport, right? And, uh, you know, 20 years, this is all fairly new to us um, who didn't grow up as a millennial. So there was a sort of before and after, like you wouldn't be doing now. Well, you wouldn't be back when you started being surfing and all that you wouldn't have done, had social media. And so it's changed the game in in a sense. And setting boundaries seems essential for sanity and just privacy and all those things. Then it seems, you know, we put ourselves out there and our image out there and our message out there. But if we don't set the boundary, then we're sort of left for others to set that for us. Yeah, completely. I agree. My golden rule has always been to not post anything that I don't want the world to see. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I'm putting it on there and putting it out there for everybody to see, and I'm also really sure that whatever message that I've placed on there has been researched and sourced and reliable, as well as, you know, something that I'm willing to argue over and fight for because it's a strong belief that I have. Mm-hmm. So I would say that they're probably like my main parameters that I kind of set. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it allows you to to live live where you do and be close to nature, and also have the reach that you have with the the audience that makes more impact with your message. Completely, I think that's you know one of the big powers of of social media is is its ability to connect you with like minded people from across the world, mm-hmm. which is absolutely amazing. And you know, I do live in regional Victoria. There's not a massive population here, although I'm only about an hour and 40 minutes from, from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's relatively, re- relatively close and handy in that, that respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, like, I think as well, like COVID has been a perfect example of that. I haven't been into the office for months and months and we're all working over Zoom. And here I am talking to you, you know, you're in Vermont. So yeah. I mean, it's nighttime and it's cold and it's early winter and, you know, for you it's tomorrow <laughs> and morning and early spring. It's it's incredible. It really is. Yeah. So I think just its ability to connect us all, as well as I guess I would want to say surfers particularly, like we're, we're completely like-minded. We have 
people surf in pretty much every country in the world now, or at least every continent, even people who live near lakes Mm -hmm. and not near the ocean. And so I think that there's, you know, parts of our tribe spread across the entire world. And so to be able to connect us over a really easy platform is fantastic. It's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. If you had um, a bit of advice to give your younger self, what would that be? I would say to never have any regrets. Yeah. Is probably my biggest one. I've never done anything that I'm like super regretful of. There's definitely a few like smaller scale things. But yeah, to whatever decisions you make in life, make sure you're not going to regret it later. Mm-hmm. And so then, did, and how do we make sure we don't regret it? Is it the preparation? to that decision or the way that then we allow the unfolding of that decision to impact our life? Uh, I would say both. Definitely preparation. Make sure that you feel right. You know, you get these weird feelings in your stomach when you're making a wrong decision and listen to that. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels, feels wrong for, for a certain reason or it feels right for a certain reason. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely say that that's probably a, a big thing as well as when you're unfolding these decisions that you make to try and do them with grace and respect to everybody that you can. Mm-hmm. Well, from someone who has a presence of living from their heart, that, that's really great advice. Do you have any books that you're reading that you'd like to recommend? I'm actually not a huge reader. Everybody asks me that. And I'm like, I don't read a lot. Any films? You're, you're in a quite a few I would say the latest uh, David Attenborough film absolutely blew my mind. It's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It's absolutely phenomenal. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank goodness for Netflix. Yep. (laughs) So Belinda, tell us more what your projects are now and what you're working on. So just recently, actually been working on it for over a year now, I'm about to launch a non-for-profit with a few great friends. It's called Surfers for Climate. We're a sea roots movement dedicated to positive climate action. The whole idea of it, I guess, partially came about after the momentum of the fight for the bite. I just saw how so many surfers globally, as well as particularly here in Australia, were fired up and ready to take action in order to protect our coastlines that we love so much. And so um, that momentum was just really inspiring, coupled with a bit of a um, climate summit that I went to with the Climate Council here in Australia. The facts that I learned were absolutely terrifying and frightening and made me realize that, you know, the ocean, or I guess part of what I learned during that was how powerful the ocean is in stabilizing our climate as well as how vulnerable it is to climate impacts. And so I think that surfers across the whole world should be provided with a really easy way to take action in order to protect the places that we love, the waves that we ride, and of course, the future of the planet on Earth. So hence, that's how (laughs) Surfers for Climate has come about. We're launching in November. So if anybody's interested you can jump over and take a look at our website. It's surfaceforclimate.org.au. We want to really be able to provide people with easy, tangible ways in order to take action, realizing that those come in in different forms, whether it be 
ways, you know, tips to clean up our own individual footprint in a more of a surf-specific way, Mm -hmm. as well as other avenues, you know, to tell stories, to be able to learn from one another, and also a really great way to be able to connect everybody with local other local non-for-profits and organizations that are working on issues that might be in your local area. Awesome. Yeah, I think the networking bit of making any impact with these initiatives is so key. Yeah, I agree. And there's so many great organizations out there already, you know, kind of specializing in so many fields that we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We don't want to be a competitor. We really want to unite everybody, bring surfers to the party in order to to follow, you know, other orgs leads locally, um, as well as provide ways where surfers can sort of individually take action. Awesome. So in November, you're launching. So in soon. Soon. Yeah. <laughs> it's been quite stressful, but we're getting well, by there. the time this um, podcast is launched, it will have launched. Yep. Great. Um, so that's great. Thank you. And are there other, you mentioned your Instagram feed. I believe you did. Yeah. If anybody wants to get in contact with me personally, Instagram's probably the best way to do that. I'm easy to find. I'm just at Belinda Bags. Awesome. Thank you so much for spending the time. This conversation has been really fun for me and definitely opened my eyes to a lot of the real issues in a very tangible way. So I appreciate that. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you. Thanks for chatting to me. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.